study of art is important for the student of history, as it shows us something of the culture that produced it in a way that goes beyond what they needed to do, and touches on what they wanted to do. I would argue that no branch of art captures this junction of need and want better than architecture, and in pre-modern societies there is no building that exemplified the architecture of a society better than that of its temple, or its church. From the imposing ziggurats of the Fertile Crescent to the delicate cathedrals of Europe, societies brought together administrative, economic, and entertainment functions into buildings that also gave form to their collective vision of the nature of being, the ordering of the cosmos, and humanity's role within these lofty horizons. Today, Ryan is going to give us a glimpse into the way the ancient Greeks executed this grandest of pre-modern architectural endeavors, with all his accustomed wit and relentless research. And as with all good writers, Ryan will likely give you enough to tell a complete story, but leave you wanting... something. Just a little bit more. A desire, a thirst, for more information. Well, if you find yourself, after the next hour or so, burning with such a thirst, allow me to offer you a cool glass of knowledge. Oh, but of course, you would never accept a drink from a stranger. How rude of me. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Benjamin Jacobs, host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Now that we are acquainted, let me tell you just a little bit about my show. On my show, I aim to trace the story of how Europe got modern, through the lens of the religious wars that racked the continent from 1524 to around, oh, 1688 or so. Of course, the role of religion in European society is deeply important to such a tale, and one cannot discuss pre-modern religion without discussing pre-modern temples, churches, and the architecture that gave form to the worldview of the people in our collective past. If this sounds good to you, please remember to check my show out after the conclusion of this episode. Again, my show is Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation, which can be found on iTunes and many other fine podcatchers, or at my show's website, Wittenberg to Westphalia Podcast.weebly.com. Thank you, and won't you join me as I sit back and enjoy yet another nice, tall glass of knowledge, courtesy of Ryan Stitt and his History of Ancient Greece podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 58, Classical Temples. Today's episode is brought to you by our new Patreon supporter, Jesse Colleen, as well as PayPal donors, Jeff Wright, and Daisy Pangilinan. If you too would like to support the History of Ancient Greece, you can become a monthly Patreon supporter at www.patreon.com backslash the History of Ancient Greece podcast, or a one-time donor at www.paypal.me slash ryanstitt. Links to the various sites are in the show notes. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Although various kinds of public and private structures fall under the category of ancient Greek architecture, it's best known for its temples, many of which can still be seen throughout the Greek world, mostly as ruins, but there are several that are still substantially intact. The second important type of architecture that survives all over the Hellenic world is the open-air theater. Other architectural forms that are still in evidence are the processional gateway that leads to a city's acropolis, 
called the Propylon, the many different buildings in the agoras of an ancient Greek city, and athletic stadiums, such as those found at Olympia, Delphi, and Nemea. Today's episode, though, will be geared towards the former, particularly temples in the 5th century BC, and the other types of architecture will be discussed in future episodes. The temple became the primary conduit for the expression of Greek architectural excellence. It was also the architectural medium unto which the Greeks expended the greatest amount of energy. Although it was originally built primarily to house a cult statue, it later became a showcase for the finest achievements of Greek architecture, and even sculpture. We've discussed this previously, but just to recap, the temple was by no means intrinsic to worship, since all cultic activity took place in the open air, around the altar. Its primary religious function was to secure the goodwill of the deity to whom it was erected. The basic layout of the temple was established around the end of the 7th century BC. It goes as follows. A pronaos, or porch, leads to a central room, called a naos. In some cases, there is a back porch, or a pistodomos, and a surrounding colonnade, known as a peristyle. Temples were mostly aligned on an east-west axis, with the cult statue facing east, so that it could witness the sacrifice being performed on the altar. Although the basic layout stayed relatively the same, in temple building in the 5th century BC, experiments in proportions and measurements continued, and the relief sculpture with which the Greeks adorned their temples offered still greater opportunities for storytelling. Like tragedy, relief sculpture focused on mythological themes grounded in painful conflicts that embroiled the Olympian gods in torturous scenarios. Tales involving animal-like figures also offered wonderful opportunities for visual artists to show off their skill. The Temple of Aphia at Agina is a good representation of the temple building in the early classical and severe style of sculpture. Construction began at some point in the late Archaic period, possibly as early as 500 BC, but its completion dates to around 480 to 470 BC. The temple is in the Doric order, having six columns on the facades, with twelve on the flanks. Aphia was a local mother goddess, worshipped exclusively only at the sanctuary at Agina. She originated possibly as early as the Bronze Age, as a local deity associated with fertility and the agricultural cycle, and inscriptions attest to her prominent role in this sanctuary during the Archaic period. The classical temple was built over the remains of an earlier 6th century BC temple that was destroyed by a fire, and since Aphia came to be assimilated with the goddess Athena, after the Athenians gained hegemonic control over the island, a lot of its new pedimental sculptures now feature Athena. The sculptures of the east and west pediments are on display in the Glyptothek Museum of Munich. Each pediment centered on the figure of Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war, who presides over scenes of fighting most likely heroic soldiers from Agina fighting against Troy. According to myth, Zeus raped the nymph Agina, who bore the first king of the island, Aeacus. He had two sons, Telamon, the father of Ajax, and Peleus, the father of Achilles. The first Trojan War, not the one described by Homer, but the War of Heracles against Laomedon, is the theme of the eastern pediment, with Telamon figuring prominently as he fights alongside Heracles. The second Trojan War, this time the one of Homer, is the theme for the western pediment, with Ajax figuring prominently. Unlike pedimental sculptures in all previous temples before, though, these were made as freestanding sculptures installed into the pediments rather than carved out of the temple itself. Athena, in particular, is taller than the rest, wearing a crested helmet and a snaky cloak over her garment, called an aegis, which is generally shown with the head of Medusa on it, 
making it a protective cloak, and she carries a shield in one hand and a spear in the other. The best preserved are those on the east pediment. A dying warrior struggling to rise with his free hand and holds onto his shield with his other for support. He has a calm expression on his face. The Greeks valued stoicism, and so he wouldn't be represented screaming in pain, but facing his end with no emotion. His nudity is a marker of heroic status. Much of the figural or architectural stone sculptures of ancient Greece were painted in strong and bright colors. This is described as polychrome by modern scholars by combining two Greek words, polo or many, and chroma or color. The paint was frequently limited to parts that depicted clothing, hair, and so forth, with the skin being left to the natural color of the stone. But paint could also cover sculptures in their totality. Due to intensive weathering, polychromy on sculpture and architecture has substantially or totally faded in most cases. However, recent archaeological achievements have been able to demonstrate, for example, that the pedimental sculptures from the Temple of Aphia on Agina were painted with bold and elaborate patterns, depicting, amongst other details, patterned clothing. The polychromy of stone statues was paralleled by the use of different materials to distinguish skin, clothing, and other details in chryselephantine sculptures, and by the use of different precious or semi-precious metals to depict armor, jewelry, lips, fingernails, and so forth on high-quality bronzes, which we discussed in detail in episode 56. Shortly after their defeat of Persia, the citizens of Olympia began to construct a new Doric temple of Zeus, and it was completed sometime between 470 and 460 BC. It was erected near the earlier 6th century BC Temple of Hera, and it followed the classical 5th century BC rule that the number of columns on the flanks should be more than double of that on the facades. So accordingly, it had 6 columns on the facades and 13 on the flanks. The materials used were local limestone for the building blocks and pentelic marble for the roof tiles and sculptures. The limestone was coated with a thin layer of stucco to give it an appearance of marble in order to match its sculptural decoration. As befitted a temple dedicated to Zeus, it was the biggest to be finished in Greece. That is, until the Parthenon was completed a few decades later. There'll be more on that in a future episode. However, it was dwarfed by other temples to Zeus in the west, at Acragas and probably at Selenus, which we will cover later in this episode. The Temple of Zeus at Olympia survived for many centuries, as it was described in detail by Pausanias, before it eventually collapsed due to an earthquake in the 6th century AD. At some point later, a thick deposit of silt and sand caused by floods from nearby rivers washed over it. The result was that this site was lost for many centuries, and as such, it fortunately suffered very little damage at the hands of looters. The site of ancient Olympia was rediscovered in 1766, and in 1829, a French team partially excavated the temple, taking several fragments of the pediments back to the Louvre. Systematic excavations of the site, and the temple, began in 1875, under the guidance of the Germans, and has continued, with some interruptions, to the present time. Their findings are housed in the nearby Archaeological Museum of Olympia. These excavations have brought to light remarkable sculptural groups on the pediments. They are severely damaged, but they have been reconstructed somewhat in the Archaeological Museum of Olympia. According to Pausanias, each pediment extended for over 80 feet from left to right, and rose in the center to a height of 10 feet. Liban of Elis was the chief architect for the project, but many artisans labored to create the elaborate sculptures. 
The sculptures from the West Pediment were created by Alchemenes, and they celebrated the recent Greek victory over the Persians and reflect the classical Greek attitude towards their enemies. In short, the Greeks saw non-Greeks as barbaric, while they characterized themselves as supreme, stoic, and disciplined. In portraying the triumph of order and civilization over animal-like barbarism, the West Pediment displays the Battle of the Lapiths and Centaurs, or the Centauramachi. In the myth, as guests at the wedding of one of the Lapiths, the hero Parathus, who was best friends with Theseus, they got really, really drunk, and as a result, they became really, really horny and assaulted the females. A major battle ensued, and the Lapiths, with the help of Theseus, drove the centaurs out of Thessaly. The pediment shows the figures twisting and turning as they struggled in this battle. In the center is the god Apollo, who represents the Greek ideals, upholding the principles of civility. He stands calmly and raises his arm to stop the disturbance. His outstretched arm might symbolize the range of his control. The centaurs are depicted as angry and wild, while Apollo, Theseus, and the Lapiths are serene and unemotional, maintaining their calm through the struggle. The Eastern Pediment, created by Pionius, portrays a more complicated story, an episode in the life of Pelops, who won his bride, Hippodamia, in a chariot race arranged by her father, Onimaeus. It's no surprise that the circumstances surrounding this race would be depicted on a temple at Olympia, since the event was associated with the beginning of the Olympic Games. We relayed the myth in great detail in episode 10, but for a quick recap, Pelops had arranged for the charioteer of Onimaeus, a man named Myrtilus, to replace the metal linchpins of Onimaeus' chariot with wax ones. In the ensuing race, Onimaeus was killed, and afterwards, Pelops decided to clean up loose ends by pushing Myrtilus off of a cliff to his death, but not before he placed a curse on him that the Greeks connected with the subsequent misfortunes of his descendants, the so-called House of Atreus. Instead of portraying the drama of the collision, though, the sculptor has chosen to depict the tense moment before the race begins. Numerous figures in the scene depicted on the temple have survived. In the center stands Zeus, larger than the other figures. He commands a dominating presence with the contestants on either side. The poses of the central group stand separately and ironically apart, giving a sense of tranquility, as the action is in the future, which also gives the scene a sense of anticipation and foreboding. One of the most remarkable individuals depicted in relief sculpture is a pensive seer, who even before the race has begun, knows what is going to happen. He is reclining with a raised clenched fist to his cheek, in a gesture of alarm. He appears to be gazing into the future, envisioning the catastrophe ahead. In both the western and eastern pediments, the statues were fastened to their respective pediments with rods, and most figures are unfinished at the back, as they were never meant to be seen. The statues demonstrate many aspects of the early classical interest in movement, emotion, narrative, and realism. Their faces show character as well as mood. Differences in the body, owing to age and gender, are also explored. Limbs, flesh, and muscle react to movement, and drapery reacts to the motion of the body as it swings, twists, and bunches. In terms of composition, the two pediments complement one another quite nicely. At the front, Zeus ordains the chariot race in its aftermath. It is symmetrical, and the action focuses inward on the central group. At the back, Apollo arbitrates the battle, and action is contained by movement and counter-movement, presenting the restless struggle in a single, timeless moment. The metopes of the front and back porches of the temple are filled with relief sculptures of the Twelve Labors of Heracles, and are perhaps the greatest example of the severe style. Heracles was the son of Zeus and a mortal woman, 
because of which Hera repeatedly tried to kill him. At one point, she managed to drive him insane, and in his rage, he killed his wife and three children. He sought to make amends and regain his honor, and so the oracle at Delphi told him to serve the king of Mycenae for 12 years. Together, he and Hera came up with 10 tasks, plus two bonus ones, that were meant to be impossible and were intended to kill Heracles. We discussed these labors in great detail in episode 47. Anyways, like with the Western Pediment and the Centauromachi, these metapies show the triumph of civilization over animal-like barbarism, as well as provide the artist an opportunity to once again portray the anatomical features of the body during a struggle. The entire sculptural program was topped off by Phidias some 20 to 30 years later, around 440 BC. After he had completed the great statue of Athena in Chryselephantine, which is gold and ivory, on the Athenian Acropolis, and had seen it set up in the newly created Parthenon, which we will discuss in a future episode, he left Athens, invited by the men of Elis, in order to make the image for the Temple of Zeus at Olympia. For five years in his workshop, he toiled over the great Chryselephantine image of the Supreme God, and this colossal statue would become the greatest creation ever achieved by a Greek sculptor. For this, it would be considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The statue was not designed until after the temple had been built, though, and it was positioned on a specially prepared base at the end of the central passageway, which was formed by the two interior colonnades. However, it was lost and destroyed sometime during the 5th century AD. The stories vary, but it was either hauled off to Constantinople and destroyed in a great fire later, or it perished along with the temple of Zeus at Olympia, which was also destroyed by a great fire. Regardless, no copies were ever made of it, in bronze or marble, and all we have to go by are written descriptions and later representations on coins. Standing approximately 13 meters, or 43 feet tall, Zeus, as the king of the Olympian gods, sat upon a lofty, elaborate cedarwood throne, ornamented with ebony, ivory, gold, and precious stones. The sides of the throne were painted by Painonus the brother of Phidias, who also helped Polygnotus and Mycon to paint the famous Stoa Poachili in the Athenian Agora. The entire statue was so large that it reached the roof. In fact, Strabo noted in the 1st century BC that if Zeus were to stand up, he would take the temple with him. Legend has it that when Phidias was asked what he would use as the model for the statue of Zeus, he retorted that he would use Homer's description in the Iliad as his guide. It reads, quote, And Zeus, the son of Kronos, bowed his craggy dark brows, and the deathless locks came pouring down from the thunderhead of the great immortal king, and giant shockwaves spread through all of Olympus, end quote. By the description of it, it seems that Phidias achieved his means. Pausanias, in the 2nd century AD, provides a very detailed description of the statue. Zeus was bearded, and his head was crowned with an olive wreath, and he wore a robe made from glass and carved with animals and lilies. In his outstretched right palm, he held a life-sized statue of Nike, the goddess of victory. The temple was dedicated in thanks to their victory over the Persians, after all. In his left hand, he held a scepter inlaid with many medals and supporting an eagle. His golden sandals rested upon a footstool, decorated with the reliefs of the Amazonomachi. The workshop in which Phidias created the statue, along with scraps of ivory, molds for making the gold drapery, and sculptor's tools, has been found immediately outside the sanctuary to the west. The identification has been made because a cup inscribed with Phidio Aimi, or I belong to Phidias, was found there. Life-size statues of the goddess Nike were often used to decorate acroteria on the roofs of temples. A famous example of this is the winged Nike by Paeonius. 
He was a pupil of Phidias and worked in his workshop. As we mentioned, he carved the eastern pediment of the Temple of Zeus at Olympia, and his winged Nike was dedicated also to the Temple of Zeus at Olympia, and still survives, though it is badly damaged. Made of Perion marble, it has been partially restored from numerous fragments. It is now in permanent exhibition at the Archaeological Museum of Olympia. The statue is considered the finest ancient rendition of a figure in flight. The goddess is shown landing gently on her left foot at the moment of touchdown from flight, with her drapery blown against her body. Her tunic, though, is scrunched up from the flight and bears her left leg and left breast. This daring composition and the transparency of her drapery foreshadows the sumptuous style that we see in the late classical period. Many efforts have been made by modern scholars to reproduce the statue as it has been described. This is needed because much of the statue is missing, including her face, a part of her neck, some of the drapery, both forearms and hands, and both of her outspread wings, most likely due to the earthquake and the ravages of time. She would have stood out against the sky, about 30 feet, or 10 meters, above the temple, atop a triangular base. It was erected around 425 to 420 BC, after the Athenian allies defeated the Spartans at the Battle of Sphacteria. An inscription reads, quote, The Mycenaeans and the Naupactians dedicated the statue to Zeus Olympias from the spoils of the wars. Paeonius of Mendes made it, who also won the competition to make the acroteria of the temple, end quote. And so it seems that Paeonius had to beat out other sculptors in some sort of competition in order to receive the commission for the monument. His victory was likely the result of devising not only the most aesthetically pleasing option, but also the most financially feasible. Regardless, the placement of his dedicatory statue at Olympia, which was in the Peloponnese, a region that was considered Spartan ground, is most often interpreted by scholars as a deliberate and assertive act of dominance and political propaganda within the context of the long-standing enmity between the Mycenaeans and the Spartans. So what would ancient visitors have thought as they viewed this temple and all of its sculptures? At the level of myth, the chariot contest involving Pelops recalled the horrific consequences of oath-breaking. The battle between the Lapiths and the Centaurs affirmed the supremacy of human discipline over unthinking barbarism, and Heracles' exploits in overcoming tremendous troubles by willpower mirrored the life of man. At the historical level, the defeats of Onimaeus, the Centaurs, and Heracles' opponents all echoed the recent Greek defeat of the Persians at the battles of Salamis and Plataea. At the topical level, the chariot race, the wrestling and boxing, and Heracles' feats of strength made clear allusion to the Olympic Games. At the philosophical level, the viewer encountered man structured in three manifestations, divine, as Zeus and Apollo, human, or the Lapiths, and animal, or the centaurs. Once inside the temple, the towering seated figure of Zeus, glittering in gold and ivory and representing the arm of fate, awaited the apprehensive ancient Greek or Roman pilgrim. According to the Roman historian Livy, the Roman general Emilius Paulus, after his victory over the Macedonians, saw the statue and, quote, was moved in his soul as if he had seen the god in person, end quote. And the Greek orator Diochrysostom declared that a single glimpse of the statue would make a man forget all of his earthly troubles. So it's clear that visitors, after seeing the iconography on the outside of the temple, would have stood in awe, and no doubt that was a reason why, that it became known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And now, let us take a short break. If you are a fan of the history of ancient Greece, 
You probably love podcasts, and maybe even history. Well, let me tell you about a new podcast I love called Historical Figures that profiles the lives of people who changed the course of history. You know their accomplishments. You know their names. But do you know why they took action to change the world? How they made their goals a reality? Or what they failed at? Historical Figures goes beyond historical facts and into historical stories. This podcast takes you on a journey through famous lives, showing you what their childhood and personalities were like, recounting the stories of their friendships, financial struggles, and giving the listener a sense of what motivated them to leave a mark on history. And so with the team of researchers, the hosts Carter and Vanessa bring history to life by providing little-known facts about some of your favorite historical figures and examining their lasting impact on the world. Check out episodes on Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein, Marco Polo, and much, much more. You can hear a new icon every Wednesday by visiting Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory, and search for Historical Figures. Again, that's Historical Figures, or visit parcast.com slash history to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash history to listen now. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Let's leave the mainland for a bit and journey west to the colonies in Magna Graecia. With the exception of a pair of fully ionic temples at Metapontum and Locri in southern Italy that were built between 480 and 470 BC, the Doric order continued to dominate temple architecture in the west. At Metapontum, they built their ionic temple in the sanctuary of Apollo with a large peristyle of eight columns by 20. From these, only a few bases and capitals survive. The Locrians demolished their archaic temple and rebuilt a new one, but with a different orientation. The temple had 17 ionic columns on the long side and 6 on the front, and used marble from Syracusan quarries. This has prompted the belief that Huron and Syracusan architects participated in the project. He certainly assisted the Locrians when they were attacked by Region in 477 BC. Moreover, Pindar records that maidens from Locri sang songs of thanks to the Syracusan tyrant in front of a temple of Aphrodite. Its attribution is unknown, but could this have been the temple of Aphrodite that Pindar mentions? Regardless, the Ionic temple at Locri was destroyed in the 11th century AD. Only the foundations can still be seen today. Built around the same time, between 470 and 460 BC, the second temple of Hera at Paestum, or Poseidonia, was closely modeled on the temple of Zeus at Olympia. Although the first temple, built almost a century beforehand, is not so well preserved, the temple of Hera too, found on the other side of the city, is one of the best preserved temples in all of the Greek world. By looking at the two temples to Hera at Paestum, one can see the evolution of the Doric order to its accepted form. The Doric order became more subtle, particularly with the column being narrower and appearing less squashed by the capital. Although the columns still display intasis, the bulge is no longer as dramatic. The second temple has six columns along its shorter sides and 14 along its longer sides. During the 18th century, the temple was erroneously called the Temple of Neptune, the Roman equivalent of Poseidon. Although that distinction lasted for some time, it is no longer the case now. Regardless, it is possible that the temple originally was dedicated to both Hera and Poseidon, as some dedicatory statues found around the large altar are believed to have been for Poseidon. Following their victory over the Carthaginians at Himera in 480 BC, Greek culture and trade flourished in Sicily. Since they saw this victory as monumental and divine, the tyrants Gelon, Theron, and Huron built massive temples throughout Greek Sicily, 
using the spoils from the battle, such as the massive Temple of Nike, or Victory, at Hemera that commemorated the battle. It was probably dedicated to either Zeus, Athena, or both. Unfortunately, it was burned and destroyed later, most likely when the Carthaginians enacted revenge and returned to capture the city at the end of the 5th century BC. None of its columns are standing upright, but most of its foundations are still visible. At Syracuse, Gelon rebuilt the Temple of Athena, which originally had been built at the end of the 6th century BC. It was nearly identical to the Temple of Victory at Hemera. The temple's foundation has seven layers of blocks, and there were six Doric columns on the facades, and 14 along the sides. Reliefs in the Regional Archaeological Museum of Palo Orsi in Syracuse show images of gorgons and lion's heads on the roof. According to Cicero, a statue of Athena holding a massive golden shield was kept concealed at the back end of the temple. Worshippers only had permission to see the statue on one special day a year. It was stolen by the Roman governor Varys in the 1st century BC. The temple was transformed into a church in the 6th century AD and then a Norman cathedral later. Today it still acts as the Cathedral of Syracuse, called the Duomo. Upon entering the Duomo on the inside, visitors can still see parts of the original walls and Doric columns. Finally, the archaic city of Acragas and all of its structures on the Acropolis had been completely destroyed during their wars with Carthage, so Theron rebuilt his city, particularly its temples, on an even grander scale. He put into process a building program that, when finished, would become known as the Valley of the Temples at Acragas. All of the temples were in the Doric order and were built out of local yellow limestone. They are on the south side of the Acropolis, facing east to see the rising sun, which represents light and thus life. The oldest temple at Acragas, dating to around 500 BC, is called Temple A by modern scholars, which they have tentatively attributed to the divine hero Heracles, based on evidence given by the Roman orator Cicero. The temple rests upon a base with three steps and has six columns at the front and back, and fifteen along the sides. The roof was decorated by lion's heads. The statue of Heracles found inside was allegedly designed by Pythagoras of Samos, the sculptor and not the philosopher. Over time, it was worn away by the kisses of the faithful, as Cicero put it, and the Roman governor Varus even attempted to steal it. Cicero later prosecuted Varus for all of his wicked actions in Sicily. In these speeches is where we find a lot of this type of information on these Sicilian temples. Anyways, the platform on the southern part of the temple is very high, in order for it to be seen by ships traveling into Acragas. During the Roman period, the cella was divided into three parts, which indicates a dedication to two other divinities. One of these probably was Asclepius, a statue of which was found in the modified cella. The other is unknown, though. The temple at one point was destroyed by an earthquake, and today, eight of the columns have been able to be reconstructed. Temple B, or the Temple of Olympian Zeus, on the eastern side of the complex, is one of the few sacred buildings at Acragas that is securely attributed to the divinity to which it was originally devoted. This building was the largest and richest temple in the Western Greek world, built with the spoils of the Battle of Hemera in 480 BC. In fact, it was the largest Doric temple ever constructed. According to Polybius, the temple was never completed though, as it was destroyed before completion when Carthage returned for vengeance to sack the city at the end of the 5th century BC. There will be more on that in a future episode. Furthermore, because of this, not much of it is left either. Luckily though, it is mentioned in various ancient sources. The cella had three aisles, and the central one may have been open to the sky. Instead of having an open colonnade, the temple had an external wall with Doric half-columns, seven on the front and back, and fourteen along the sides. 
Atlas or Telamon statues, about 8 meters high or 25 feet, supported the entablature between the columns, bearing the weight of the upper portion of the temple in their upheld hands. Not only was there a huge quantity of war booty, but an enormous number of prisoners of war who were available to labor on a number of these ambitious building projects. And so these giant sculpted statues have often been interpreted as portraying the defeated Punic slaves who labored away on the temple. One of the fallen atlases has been reassembled in the nearby archaeological museum of Agrigento, the name of the modern city, after the Roman Agrigentum. And another can be seen laying on the ground beside the ruins of the temple. Attempts to make a detailed reconstruction of their original appearance is hampered by their poor condition, as they are heavily eroded and all of their feet are missing. The atlases are an exceptionally unusual feature on Greek temples, though. According to Diodor Siculus, there was no sculpted metopes on the temple, but the sculpture on the eastern pediment portrayed the Gigantomachy, while those on the west represented the fall of Troy, both suitable metaphors for the victory of the Sicilian Greeks over the barbaric and eastern rooted Carthaginians. This massive temple was made even grander by being erected on a large platform with five steps. The last of these steps was double the height of the others, forming a podium for the temple and making it rise above the others. About 50 meters from the front of the temple are the ruins of a sacrificial altar, with its monumental staircase to the level where the sacrifices took place. Temple D has been erroneously attributed to Hera due to the incorrect interpretation of the Roman author Pliny. Its actual attribution is unknown, though. It is built on the eastern extremity of the Valley of the Temples and dates to around 450 to 440 BC. It rests upon a base with four steps and has six columns at the front and back and 13 along the sides. On the side walls of the cella, there were staircases, which led to where the treasures were held, since there was no adaton. Current remains consist of the front colonnade with parts of the architrave and of the frieze. Only fragments of the other three sides survive with few elements of the cella. Pliny wrote that marriages took place inside the temple. Since Hera was the goddess of marriage, this led him to attribute the temple to her, as we mentioned. Some stone blocks are reddened, which is evidence of the destruction by the Carthaginians. It would later be restored in the Roman period. On the eastern side of the temple are the remains of a monumental altar, preceded by ten steps, which led to the level where sacrifices took place. Temple F, or the Temple of Concordia, which is the Roman goddess of harmony, is the best-preserved Doric temple in Sicily, and one of the best-preserved temples in the entire Greek world. The associated deity is unknown, but some scholars believe the original dedication of the temple was to the Dioscori, Castor and Pollux. It owes its name of Concordia, meaning harmony, to a Latin inscription with a dedication to the harmony of the people of Agrigentum, which was found in its vicinity, but not associated to it. To have Concordia Deorum meant to have good relations with the gods. It was built around 440 to 430 BC and is founded on a base with four steps. It has six columns in the front and back and 13 along the sides. There doesn't seem to have been any sculpted decoration though. It has been preserved so well because it was transformed into a Christian church in the 6th century AD to the saints Peter and Paul. On the eastern side, there are also temples believed to have been attributed to other deities like Demeter, built between 480 and 460 BC, Hephaestus, built around 430 BC, Asclepius, built between 420 and 410 BC, and Castor and Pollux, built around 400 BC. The temple of Hephaestus, called Temple G, is thought to have been one of the most imposing buildings in the valley, but now it is one of the most eroded. The temple of Asclepius, called Temple H, is found rurally, outside the city walls, which was so often the case with his temples. 
It was where pilgrims flocked, seeking cures for their illnesses. Despite the remains of the Temple of Castor and Pollux, called Temple I, only including four columns, it is now the symbol of modern Agrigento. A series of five Doric temples were also constructed on the Acropolis of Selenus, modern Selenunte, in southwestern Sicily, that dated to the Archaic period, including a temple to Apollo. This is the only one that isn't rubble because in the 1920s, 14 of the north side 17 columns were re-erected, along with part of the entablature. To the east of the Acropolis, there were three temples. Of these three, once again only one temple isn't in rubble, the Temple of Hera. It was built around 460 to 450 BC, on top of foundations to a more ancient temple. It has been identified with Hera thanks to a votive inscription found within. It is the best preserved of the temples at Selenus, but this is in large part also due to reconstruction efforts in the 20th century. It has six columns along the front and back, and 15 along the sides. Twelve sculpted stone metopes decorated the frieze with six over each porch. They were made of local limestone, though Parian marble was used for faces and limbs of the women. Four of the twelve metopes have been preserved, those being images of the marriage of Hera and Zeus, Acteon being torn apart by Artemis's hunting dogs, Athena killing the giant Enceladus, and Heracles killing the Amazon Antiope. A fifth one is in fragments and may depict Apollo chasing after Daphne. All of them are kept in the Archaeological Museum of Palermo, the modern capital of Sicily. These metopes show evidence of the evolution towards the classical style, which is important because it means that the influences on sculpture that were popular at Athens and elsewhere on the mainland had reached the Western Greeks. Specifically, it's peculiar that the workshop of sculptors at Selenus slotted marble pieces into limestone metopes, and this is the only evidence that we have of that happening, so it must have been a regional thing. At Segesta, in western Sicily, a Doric temple outside the city was left unfinished, dating to around 430 to 420 BC. The peristyle of six columns by 14 still stands to this day, with its entablature and pediments, but the columns were left unfluted. Its unfinished state provides valuable evidence about the stages of temple construction, specifically that the outer colonnade and its entablature were put up before the cella. The Doric refinements are very similar to that of the Parthenon at Athens, the grandest temple of them all, which we will discuss in a future episode. This seems to suggest that it was designed by an architect from Athens. If true, and the suggestions had brought in outside help, this wouldn't be a stretch to the imagination since the Athenians and the Suggestions at that point had made a political and military alliance against the growing regional power of the Syracusans. There too will be much more on that in a future episode. Let's turn our attention back to the Greek mainland, where we will find the last famous temple of the 5th century BC, a temple of Apollo that was built high up in the mountainous part of Arcadia, at a place called Basai. Its construction is placed between 430 and 400 BC, and according to Pausanias, it was designed by Actinus, the architect of the Parthenon at Athens. It was constructed out of gray Arcadian limestone. The temple is of modest size, containing six Doric columns on the facades and 15 along the sides. Pausanias records that the temple was dedicated to Apollo Epicorios, or the Helper, and thanks for him delivering them from the plague of 429 BC, the very same one which wrecked havoc on Athens in the Peloponnesian War, which we will discuss in a future episode. Pausanias praises the temple as eclipsing all others, in its beauty of stone and the harmony of its construction, except for the now-destroyed Temple of Athena at Tegea. 
Although this temple is geographically remote from the major polities of ancient Greece, it is one of the most studied ancient Greek temples because of its multitude of unusual features, many of which anticipated the developments that would come along in the 4th century BC, making it a transitional building between the two centuries. First off, its orientation is unusual as it's aligned north to south, in contrast to the usual alignment of east to west, with its entrance being from the north. However, this was necessitated by the limited space available on the steep slopes of the mountain. To overcome this restriction, a door was placed on the side of the temple, perhaps to let light in or to illuminate the cult statue. Although it was a Doric structure, like the Parthenon, the Temple of Apollo at Basai was decorated with the sculpted Ionic frieze. But whereas the frieze of the Parthenon runs around the outside of the cella, here it was placed in the interior. The 23 marble metopes show either the Athenians in battle with the Amazons or the Lapiths with the centaurs. The temple is also unusual in that it has examples of all three of the classical orders. Doric columns form the peristyle, Ionic columns support the porch, and a single Corinthian column stood in the interior against the Adaton. This is the earliest example of the Corinthian order found to date. The Corinthian capital has a bell-shaped echinus surrounded by ancanthus leaves, spirals, and palmettes, and has small pairs of volutes at all four corners. It provides the same view from all sides and is therefore more useful than the Ionic capital, whose volutes present visual problems at the corners of buildings. The use of the Corinthian capital is one of the hallmarks of the 4th century BC. Its popularity slowly increased until its supremacy was assured by the Roman period. Following their excavations of the Temple of Aphia at Agina, the English archaeologist Charles Robert Cockrell and the German Karl Haller turned their eyes to the recently discovered Temple of Apollo at Basai, tucked away for centuries high in the mountains. After bribing the Turkish commander of the Peloponnese, its 23 metopes were removed from the cella frieze, which were eventually bought at an auction by the British Museum in 1815. They can still be seen in the British Museum near the Parthenon marbles that were extracted by Lord Elgin from the Parthenon of Athens. Cockerell also decorated the walls of the Great Staircase of Oxford's Ashmolean Museum and that of the Travelers Club in London with plaster casts of the same frieze. Eight fragments believed to belong to the frieze are also in the National Archaeological Museum in Athens. Russian archaeologists also excavated the site in the 1830s, and some of the recovered artifacts are on display in Moscow. Pausanias is the only ancient traveler whose remarks on Basai have survived, probably due to its remoteness, which actually has worked to its advantage for its preservation. Other, more accessible temples were damaged or destroyed by war, or preserved only by conversion to Christian churches or Ottoman mosques, but this temple escaped both of these fates. Furthermore, due to its distance from major metropolitan areas, it also has less of a problem with acid rain, which quickly dissolves limestone and damages marble carvings. The temple is presently covered in a white tent, as conservation work is currently being carried out by the Greek Ministry of Culture. During the 5th century BC, Greek artists were constantly learning new artistic techniques and addressing new problems. As a consequence, even in the absence of an archaeological context that would enable us to date a given artifact with chronological exactitude, we are often able to situate it within a single decade. Coupled with this inherent innovativeness, however, was an inherent conservatism. For instance, although the different orders of architecture underwent refinement over the centuries, the temple remained the preferred medium of architectural expression. Similarly, the human body served throughout Greek antiquity as the focus for all sculptural and pictorial endeavors. The Greek world did not foster artistic movements in the modern sense of the term. 
nor did artists, utilize their skills to make a personal statement. At all periods of history, their level of achievement was remarkably uniform. They have bequeathed to us very few bad or even indifferent works of art. Even in their poorest productions, it is generally the taste, rather than the technical accomplishment, that is deficient. Clearly, artists were intimately familiar with one another's work, and saw themselves as participants in a collective enterprise. Not the least distinctive feature about Greek art is its broad and undeviating acceptance of society's expectations of what constitutes art. There was, though, a major shift in artistic style during the late classical period, as a result of a tremendous amount of political upheaval, both in Greece and in the West. Almost continuous warfare between polis and between Greeks and foreigners, and internal struggles within cities between democrats, oligarchs, and monarchs, did little to help the works of planners, architects, sculptors, and painters. But new buildings did go up, old buildings were repaired, and new cities were planned. Energetic workshops of vase painters in southern Italy competed with the weakened Athens in the development of the red figure style. The great sculptors of the 4th century BC, most prominent being Praxitalis, Scopus, and Lysippus, began to steer away from the idealism of the high classical period though, and instead focused on realism by paying more attention to emotion and expressions, as opposed to grandeur and happiness. But that's a story for another episode, and we have a whole lot of other history to cover in the 5th century BC before we get there. But first, Zeus, as king of the gods, was the recipient of many of these Greek temples that we spoke about this episode. So in the next episode, we are going to discuss his cult and how he is worshipped throughout the Greek world. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 59, Olympian Zeus. (laughs) 